Have you ever had good news to share? Like something really exciting? And isn't it just natural for us to be the one that want to tell everybody else, tell the rest of the family, tell, tell the group um, that you're a part of, uh, everybody at work, wherever it might be. Wow, this is great. I want to let them know. And that's exciting. Because we want to, we, we know the, the, the reaction people are going to have, and it, it feels good to, to give them something that's going to bring smiles to faces and joy to hearts. How about the opposite? Bad news. Who wants to line up to bring the bad news to people? Who wants to line up and say to, you know, whoever, well, I hate to tell you this, but here's what's happening. Or here's what's going to happen. It's, got, it, it's bad and then it's not going to get better. Whatever the circumstance. We don't line up for that. I've enjoyed watching uh, a lot of television series that deal with history. And there's some such great um, production in those these days, in many of them. And one theme you'll find in history, especially in times when monarchies were the way and there was kings in every town, it seemed, when someone has bad news to bring to the king, what happens to the news giver? What happens to the messenger? I mean, there, there's, that, there, there's that phrase, shoot the messenger. That, 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 that's not there by accident because a, a king will often react with you know, great anger toward the person who brought the message, even though the, that person is not personally responsible for the news itself. It's just a letter. It's just a word. I just wanted to, I have to tell you. I don't want to tell you because I know how you're going to react, react to this. But yeah, well, that circumstance plays out here. And there's a prophet named Elijah that he probably got used to that. Prophets in the Old Testament were the ones that went before the kings, and not just the kings of Israel and Judah, to give them a message from God, give them a warning. I mean, why, why did Jonah run? He didn't want to go to, to Nineveh and give them that message from God because it was bad news. But they got used to it, I guess. And Elijah had a circumstance that leads up to this 19th chapter that I want to share today. Now, if, if I were to choose my favorite Bible stories in, in the entire Bible, especially Old Testament stories, this is, this is my top two or three for sure. Number one for me is easy. Uh, Joseph and Genesis, that's my favorite story in the Old Testament. But this might be second. It's Elijah here from the 17th to the 19th chapter of the book of 1 Kings and, and what happened to this prophet and, and how deep it went and how he ends up Asking God or telling God this, Lord, I have had enough. I chose that because how many of us have been there in these last two years? How many of us are there right now? How many people do we know that are there right now? We feel like we've had enough and we can't take any more. We've had this Big wet blanket of the pandemic draped upon the entire planet. 
the only time, certainly in our lives, that this one, one event, one disaster has happened to everybody on the planet. Even if you haven't gotten the virus, the, the impact of it and the measures taken to prevent it from spreading further have affected everyone. And it continues to affect everyone. And that's all on top of whatever other trials and difficulties are in your life. And, it, and more that have happened since then unrelated to the pandemic, but still very painful. Lord, I have had enough. So how did Elijah get to this place? Now understand, Elijah is considered to be the greatest of all the prophets of the Old Testament. When Jesus went on the, that mountain and was transfigured before Peter, James, and John, there was two Old Testament characters that miraculously appeared there. Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the greatest prophet, the law and the prophets. So Elijah of all people, got this low where he couldn't take it anymore. I'll tell this story uh, briefly. You may be familiar with some of these, but it's important for us to see some of the detail as to what happened that got him into this place. On the outline I handed out today, it's, it's simply some open questions. I, I'm not going to, it's not a fill in the blank thing. It might be some things you're thinking about. So um, if, if you're a jotter, go ahead and jot some things down that, that I might share, that you might think of as we're going through the scriptures. Elijah in the 17th chapter of 1 Kings is introduced kind of, kind of out of nowhere, just says Elijah the Tishbite, but it wasn't like he had a history coming in that was recorded in terms of being a prophet. But Ahab was king of Israel, Israel being the northern kingdom. There was Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Judah is where Jerusalem is. Samaria is where the northern kingdom is, and that's where their, um, their capital city, their palace was in, in the city of Samaria. So during the, the history of the northern kingdom, Israel, they never had one godly king who led the people in the right way. That doesn't mean there wasn't godly people in the nation. It just means the kings again and again failed. They, they just walked away from God and his ways. They brought in other, um, other religions and worshiped idols and everything that went with it. And Ahab was no exception. In fact, he was about the worst of the worst. And Ahab, to make it even worse, married a foreign woman who brought in her gods, and her name is Jezebel. And Jezebel is as evil or even more so than Ahab himself. In fact, in a lot of senses, it seems that, that she really controlled things there. She, she was the one in charge. Ahab just kind of went along with whatever she wanted. As long as she's happy, I'm happy. Go ahead, worship any way you want. I don't care. That's, that's the sense you get. Well, God cared and sent Elijah to confront Ahab about this. And he said, that's it. I've, I've, I've had enough. He's telling to, telling to, 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 um, to Ahab, on, on behalf of God, that you need to stop and just to, maybe this will convince you it's not going to rain for a long time. And until Elijah says again it's going to rain, it's not going to rain. Elijah said that, went out, and basically went into hiding. Because again, he didn't want to be the messenger that was shot or stabbed or whatever. But So he went by a, a brook, a stream, 
and God fed him with um, ravens would bring food every day. But eventually, as the drought went on, that stream, like other streams, dried up. And so he had to find other food sources. And he goes to this widow in the place named Zarephath. And, she, and there, you can read the story in detail in, in the, in the uh, 18th, 17th chapter of 1 Kings. But God provided for both him through her and her son. And then eventually we get to the 18th chapter. It's now three plus years, three and a half years or so. And God then reveals to Elijah, okay, it's time for you to go back to confront Ahab. And he does so. And Ahab is, is angry at him. Where have you been? You, you, it's your fault. And he's still blaming the messenger, not seeing the message, not responding to the message. So Elijah says, get all your prophets together and meet me at Mount Carmel. And we're going to settle this with a contest. And that's what they did. So they met at the foot of Mount Carmel next to a body of water. And there they built altars. And it was very simple. You guys pray, all you prophets of Baal. Do whatever you have to do to convince Baal to light the wood. No tricks, no pyrotechnics, just prayer. And I'm going to do the same. So the prophets of Baal went first. They prayed, they chanted, they sang, they danced, they cut themselves. They did all kinds of weird things. Um, Elijah was even mocking them at some point. Nothing happened. Elijah said, okay, it's my turn. He prays, but then he says, wait, he must have been someone that just liked dramatic effect. Go down to that water over there, take some jugs, and let's douse the wood. Make it really wet. I mean, I mean, soak and sop and wet, and, and you, there's no way this is going to get lit, right? So they do so, and it's dripping everywhere. And he prays, and God responds, and burns up the wood, burns up the altar, evaporates all the water. The people watching this finally realized, wait a minute, what have we been doing? Worshiping this Baal God from these weird guys who've been doing all kinds of horrible things, including human sacrifice, to appease their God. Let's kill them. And they did. I mean, they deserve death, okay? I understand that, all right? When you're responsible for human sacrifice, I think that's, you're, you're, you're in line for being put away. You're, you, you kill people like that, you're, you're done. And they did. So all the prophets of Baal are gone. And then it gives more detail about this in the 18th chapter, but the rain came. So it started with a, a tiny cloud the size of a fist, and it grew and came and did a big storm and a wind, and it poured like crazy. So at that point, think about what it was like to be Elijah. He had been in hiding for three years because of the threat to his life from Ahab. He just won the contest. I mean, God did, but, you know, he's given credit for it, basically. The enemies of God, in terms of this false religion, are gone. The rain came back. Oh, it's over. I think... In varying degrees, all of us can relate to Elijah in this way. For the last two years, 
we've had this heightened alert in our lives. I don't want to get sick. I don't want my kids to get sick. And, and all the stuff that goes with the pandemic, and we just want it to be over. It's not over yet. So our, our focus, our minds are, are ratcheted up and kept there. A state of heightened alert. That's what Ahab had. And then it was over. So he thought. And he let his guard down. Now, I'm not criticizing him for that. Who wouldn't? He didn't want to live like that the rest of his life. He, he wanted to, to be in his community and have family. And certainly there's still hard things to do about being a prophet, but he wanted to live his life. And he couldn't. And now he can. It's over. But the queen wouldn't let it be over. And the queen threatened his life. Now, even though all her friends, the prophets, were gone, even though all the people, when they saw this miracle from God that, that lit the, the altar that Elijah built miraculously, were praising God, you are the one true God, praise you, hallelujah. And yet, that woman's one sentence almost made all of the good news that had just happened evaporate in his mind. Because once you come down from that place, you are in a very vulnerable spot. And it doesn't take much to knock you over. You, you don't just restart that train really fast, do you? When that, you know, it, it, it takes miles to stop a train, basically. And when it finally stops, well, restart the engines. And I don't know much about trains, okay, but I think you, you, you get the picture. So when we've been through something really hard and we say it's over and then something else happens, that something else can be the tiniest thing and it can really zing us right back to put us into a place that we've been trying to fight off and now we can't. And that's where Elijah went. He went into a very depressed state. And he ran. And he went to, just traveled into the wilderness. And he went to this broom bush of some kind where there's some cover he could hide if some soldier's looking for him. He's exhausted. And that's where he cries out to God. And he says here again in, in 1 Kings chapter 19, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Elijah here is, he is kind of um, complaining to God in a sense, but he's really turning the back on himself. It must be my fault. I'm no better than anybody else. Here I thought it was all over and it's not. I must have done something wrong. Oh, forget about it. Just, just get me out of here, God, right now. I'm done. So what does God do about that? His prophet Elijah is in this depressed spot, position in his life. What does God say? What does God do? Well, the first thing is that 
understand that God didn't say anything at first. And, and sometimes in Scripture, it's not just what is said, it's what's not said that we should consider. So God speaks, and we'll get to that in a few moments, long time later, weeks. So the fact that he didn't speak, the fact that he didn't answer Elijah and say, Oh, just suck it up. Will you stop complaining and get on with it? That wasn't God. He also didn't say, oh, you poor little Elijah. You've suffered so much here. It's okay. I'm going to make those bad people go away. Didn't say that either. Didn't respond. Because when someone is in that spot, there are no words that are going to make it better, that are going to make it go away. But that doesn't mean that God didn't respond. What did God do? It tells us he sent an angel to him. Now, as I always emphasize this when we have, talk about angels, don't picture the, the white robe and the wings, all right? It's, it's a person. It looks like a person, you know, sent from heaven, but they manifested himself, assume, presumably, as a, looked like a man, And what did that man do? Fed him. Made sure he got some rest. That's what God did for him. He made sure he was taken care of physically. And we know that today. When when someone's going through great trial and grief and sorrow, they're they're so wrapped up in this in the and the sadness that they don't want to eat or don't bother to eat, don't remember to eat. So you need to give them food. Make sure they eat. Hey, have you slept? No. Well, look, you need to get some slept. Stop worrying about all these details and all this planning. Look, you, you go get your rest. That's what people need. God understands that. That's why he sent an angel to do it, too. He didn't just drop some food down. Boom, now go ahead and eat and disappear. He brought this angel not just for the food, but for the companionship. Someone to be with him. And then, too, that as he fell asleep, if, if he's by himself, still worried about whether or not Ahab and the guards were going to show up and stab him in the middle of the night, the fact that someone else was there would help him rest better. Because that was off his mind. So God acted. God stepped in and, and took care of, the, of the, the need in the moment. The need wasn't for him to speak to him. To give him the words that will make it better. But his need was to eat, to rest, and have someone with him. And then he got up and um, he kept going. It's a long journey for you, the angel told him. And he's going to travel from this location to Mount Sinai. It says Mount Horeb here in in the NIV. It's, It's the same place, okay? Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, two names for the same place. Mount Sinai is where Moses got the law of God and met with God. So Elijah was going to go there, was planning, and would. Now, it would not take in that time 40 days to get from the place he was at this broom tree to Mount Sinai. In fact, it would take a matter of days, a few days, less than a week. So what was he doing for 40 days? He was wandering in the wilderness. 
Now, if you know your Bibles a little bit, and if you don't, that's okay. But maybe that 40 and the, will, and the wandering sounds familiar. Moses, as he led the people of Israel, and as they denied God and, and worshipped the golden calf, what happened? They were, uh, I got the wrong story, sorry. When they were going to go to the, to the um, promised land and they looked to see um, how big the enemy was to, con- to, to have conquest over that land, they were afraid and they said, nah, let's go back to Egypt and take the golden calf with us and maybe you know, Pharaoh will figure we have a God now on our side so he won't make us slaves again. But they weren't obedient to God. And so that entire generation of leaders, the older people in that group, were destined to die in the wilderness until a new generation grew up and then 40 years later, under Joshua's leadership, they would go and take the promised land. So Elijah is kicking the same rocks for 40 days that his ancestors kicked around and walked around on and put tents up and were fed manna from the desert and, and you know Moses brought water from Iraq. All those things happened during those 40 years of wilderness wandering. And Elijah is doing his own wandering. But eventually he gets to Mount Sinai. And he goes up into a cave, and Jewish scholars believe it was the exact same spot on the mountain, the same cave where Moses was when he received the law of God. So now, after almost a month and a half of silence from God, God speaks. And this is down at the the ninth verse. What are you doing here, Elijah? Sounds like kind of a cold question, doesn't it? God knows everything. Why is he asking him that? Well, it wasn't just about the geography and the the location in the cave. It was about where he was at in his heart, where he was at in his head, in his mind. What are you doing here? What is, how did you get into this spot, Elijah? To his credit, Elijah answers, and this is one of the, I think, one of the important principles of this story. He gives God a very honest prayer. He says here in the 10th verse, I have been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. So he let it out. He vented to God. Why am I here? This is why. He's angry. He's frustrated. He's depressed. And he finally speaks and lets it out. It doesn't say in Scripture he said anything during those 40 days. Maybe he did. Maybe he was venting the whole time. Or maybe he was in such such a deep state of depression that he couldn't find words to say anything. He's just wandering aimlessly. Then God said this in the 11th verse, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. That's kind of a confusing statement, and I'll let the smarter scholars figure that out as, you know, God's talking to him, and go out in my presence, and then I'm going to come by. So how does that all work and play out? It probably has something to do with the exact words of Lord there and that kind of thing. Um, I'm 100% sure, but what, what matters is this. 
that God was going to give these incredible expressions of power, but Elijah was supposed to listen to see or to look, to, to, uh, to sense when God was there. And this is a, a, a classic story. Uh, a great and powerful wind comes. Must have been as strong as a tornado was dropping apart, apart rocks. And God was not in the wind. Back when the, the drought ended and when the cloud came, there was a big wind that came with the rain, like we get here, like we got windy the other night and knocked some people's power out for a while. But so we understand what, what strong wind can do. So was there an expectation in his heart that God was going to just bring a wind and blow through all the troubles, blow out all the, the difficulty? Well, God wasn't in the wind. And then I said there was an earthquake. Earthquakes were common um, in, I, sh I should say they, they, were, they happened frequently in Scripture to God's people for various reasons. When Elijah was living next to that brook while there was still water and being fed by the ravens, uh, scholars believe that brook may have been very close to Jericho. So while he's near Jericho during those months and a couple of years maybe, he's, is he thinking about what happened to Jericho? When Joshua led the people around and marched, and eventually what kind of like an earthquake that knocked those massive walls down, is that what he wanted? Knock Jerusalem over with an earthquake, or excuse me, in this case, Samaria, shake them up? Was that it? But God wasn't in the earthquake. And then there was a massive fire. And he's thinking about the fire that came to burn up the altar. But God wasn't in the fire. You think about that. What, what those three things have in common is obviously it's destruction, but a, a great wind, especially a tornado, um, an earthquake, I've never been in one. I don't know if any of you have, but um, and a, a big fire, they're all noisy. I mean, frighteningly so. You, you feel it in the distance, you get closer, there, there's, there's this, this power there. And God wasn't in any of those violent expressions. Was Elijah looking for God to be violent? Was God looking for God for was Elijah looking for God in the violence? So where is God? And then there was a gentle whisper. King James calls it the still small voice. That's when he knew God was there. And that's the way God is, isn't it? Sometimes we want the wind and the fire and the earthquake to, to just wipe out all of our troubles. And yet, when we allow the noise of life to quiet the heart enough and listen for the gentle whisper of the voice of God, that's when... He's ready to speak to us, and that's when we're ready to hear Him. And I think that's really more of it. I think God's always ready to speak to us, but we have to be in the place. Where are you, Elijah? And he repeats that question. What are you doing here, Elijah, in the 13th verse? And then Elijah repeats the same response, word for word, in the 14th verse. I've been very zealous for the Lord. You're, they've rejected, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, um, torn down your altars, the prophets are all gone, 
that is the prophets of God, and I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. So he's still there. He still hasn't, the, the, the earth, wind, and the fire didn't shake him off of that attitude, and the still small voice is just asking him once again, where are you at? What do you expect from me, Elijah? So now God says more, down in the 15th verse. Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And then for the next couple of verses, he makes a list of doing the work of the prophet, anointing people. That's not the only thing they did, but that was one of them. All right? Anointed some kings. And then it says to um, anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, to succeed you as prophet. And then he talks about what they're going to do and handling some lingering difficulties in these nations and all of that. But down at the 18th verse, God says this, almost like an aside, because he hasn't addressed Elijah's question yet. Like, why is this happening? God says this, Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. You are not alone. If you are alone, it's only because you have made it so. I was telling the children a few moments ago, when God created people, He said after creating only one, it is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for women to be alone. It is not good for you to be alone or me to be alone. We all need connection. We all need people around us. Family, friends, that's what the church was designed to do. That we are with one another. And so there there is a support system. But when someone is alone, it is the... The situations that they have faced with the the circumstances of their lives and the happenings, and there's a lot happening. There's a lot of it is bad. And so it's understandable that people get depressed and turn into loneliness and think that no one else understands or can ever understand where I'm at, what I'm going through. That is a lie of the enemy, and it's a very effective lie that a lot of people get sucked into. They go it alone, thinking that there's no one there. And God is telling Elijah, yes, there are. There's 7,000. There's more than 7,000. But you have isolated yourself to the point where you're not going to see them. So what does God do for Elijah? He says, get back to work. Get back and be with people. Do the things that a prophet does. And then probably the most important of those is this. He had him invest himself in someone else. And not just anyone, but the person who was going to succeed him. We have the books in the Bible, 1st and 2nd Kings. The dividing line between 1st Kings and 2nd Kings isn't a king. It's a prophet. And even though Elijah wasn't there until the last few chapters of 1 Kings, the page turns into 2 Kings when Elisha is the prophet. 
But this was not an instant transition. It was likely as long as 20 years from this moment when God said, go find this guy named Elisha, until Elijah was sent off into heaven miraculously on a chariot of fire. You read about that into the, I think it's the second chapter of, of Second Kings. So Elijah had 20 years to prepare Elisha to be the next prophet of God in Israel. He was going to, to mentor him, basically. And isn't that something that I know getting a little older myself, I'm 62, I, I, I think about, you know, beyond myself a little bit more and, and investing in people younger than me and not just my family and my grandkids, influence them as best I can, but, but others as well that, that to have the assurance in my heart that, you know, God's work is going to go on when the Lord takes me off in a chariot to heaven. And going back to what I mentioned about the wilderness wanderings of God's people, think about that if you were one of those and you were the older generation that was going to die in that desert before they, they took the promised land with Joshua. What was your day-to-day -day life like? What was your mentality? Now, if, if that were me, I, I'm hopeful that I would think, okay, I messed up and I'm going to die out here and I have to accept that as reality but I'm going to give the rest of my, my days, my waking breaths, to making sure that my kids and my grandkids embrace the hope that I threw away. That's my challenge. So Elijah had a similar challenge. Invest yourself in Elisha, because you're not alone. So I hope something from these words have resonated with you, whether you're going through your own low time at yourself where, where these words you said this morning or last night or last week, Lord, I've had enough. You need that honest prayer. But you need companionship with you or if someone you know is going through that. Be that companion. You don't have to have the words, just be there. And, and if they're, they're not getting rest, ask them. If they're not eating well, ask them. Or provide those things and as much as you can affect that. And then people need time and space to wander. People need silence too. People need to, to time to grieve, time to be alone, but know that someone's there on the other side of their loneliness. We do need to, to, to vent to God. And don't look for God to, to be violent. Don't look for God in the violence. Look for God's, listen for God's still small voice. And you can only do that when you get your heart and mind quiet. Because there's fires and earthquakes and, and tornadoes whipping around in your mind when you're going through difficulty. And you have to settle those down so you can hear God. Get back to work then. Whatever that means for you. Back to your life. Back to things that matter in your life. And invest yourself in someone else. Someone that, that trusts you, that you can influence. You know, maybe someone younger than you, maybe not. But who can you share with about this, this faith journey you're on? because you're not alone, and you shouldn't be ever. Let's pray. Father, may we go forward from this place today with confidence. May we go forward from this place with hope. And if there's anyone in this room right now or anyone watching at home 
that is, is in that place where they just said, Lord, I've had enough. Bring people to them. Bring people who will just sit with them, be with them. Make sure they're taking care of themselves. And maybe we can be that person for someone else too. But Lord, thank you for this example in Scripture and how you handled Elijah in times of difficulty. These days are hard. These days are long and difficult. But our God is bigger than all of that. We trust in Him and His name. Amen.